Good evening. Happy Wednesday to you. We are back live. Thank you for joining us wherever you're watching. And tonight I have Jeff Kelman here. He is my CPA. I am your host, Doug Tabbitt, founder of Switch Cars, GT Vault, and uh, Cannonball Run record holder. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about taxes and how that affects your exotic car ownership. Uh, or your exotic car investment, a lot of people call cars investments. I have a little bit different opinion on that topic, but we're certainly going to uh, see how taxes play into that and uh, make it an advantage or a disadvantage. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this one because I've asked uh, Jeff a lot, a lot of questions along the way, of course, about my business, but also just things out of curiosity. And I've got a number of questions lined up to go for him, but uh, also chime in with your questions. If you like, you can call in live. The number is 216-294-4124. Again, it's 216-294-4124. You can ask your tax questions as it relates to vehicle ownership. You can also post your question uh, in the comment flow of wherever you're watching live and our producer Ethan will get those over to me if they're any good. Uh, Jeff, thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to be with me. Thank and, you for having uh, me. Absolutely. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background, uh, who you work for. It's Kelmer, Kelman Moses Seifert Happerstein Dewey Cheatham and how something like that. <laughs> Give me the 100-foot flyover of who you are and why you're qualified to be here tonight. Um, I am a CPA. I've been practicing for 30-some years. I'll just leave it at that number. <laughs> I think I'm approaching Since 40. I was born. And uh, the name of our firm is Kelman, Moses, Seifert, and Hartstein. Uh, we started the firm in 2004 as Kelman and Moses. And uh, we've since expanded, added partners, and our area of expertise is small business accounting, taxes, and the like. Yes, taxes. All right. All right. Are you a car guy? For driving them, yes. For owning them, probably no. <laughs> Why is that? To me, it's a. I enjoy having a nice car to drive to and from work or wherever I've got to go. Uh, I've never bought a car as an investment. That's that's a good answer. What what do you drive now? A 2021 Audi A8. Did you know that an Audi A8 set the Cannonball record during COVID? It beat our record before we got it back. I did a good job with that car, didn't I? <laughs> did you know that when you bought it, or no, you just I bought did. it because you liked it? I liked the car. <laughs> They are good cars. The The reason it, it did it actually is uh, the guy who set the record, he was driving his dad's uh, A8 to his storage facility, and he's going along the road. He's like, man, this thing is just, it, I'm cruising 120. It's just no big deal. It's super smooth. It was getting reasonable gas mileage, and there was nobody really on the roads because it was COVID. So he said, man, I, I think this would make a great cannonball car. So his dad was out of town, had no idea, and he put a couple of uh, marine fuel tanks in the trunk and roped a few friends in. They went across the country. 
And is so. that are they the current record hol- record holder? No, no. We you uh, came back and beat we, it. we had to come back. We couldn't let it go down like that. <laughs> so yeah, we we came back and and got it back. But yeah, an, an Audi A8 did did hold the Cannonball record very briefly. So for about a month. So you have you have some provenance in that. I won't be looking to break your record. <laughs> Uh, well, let's get right into the questions because, man, it's a, it's a, it's a sticky topic. Taxes. Nobody wants to pay them. They want to find people to help them navigate the landscape of complying with the law at the lowest possible cost. Yeah, you know, I don't. I'd like to say I don't mind paying them when I feel like I'm getting value. And probably the best example of that is tolls. I love paying tolls because I know that I'm actually being like fairly charged. It's, I feel like it's the closest that government gets to an independent business or free market because I'm using it and I'm paying for it as I use it for the amount that I use it. And it's going in theory to keep up and repair the roads that I'm using. I'd rather pay tolls than be taxed some arbitrary amount based on my income, not based on how much I use the roads. It's so. unfortunately the system that we're stuck with, and um, I don't see it getting uh, a whole lot better despite the promises of politicians <laughs> over the years. And um, I would expect, candidly, that we'll be seeing increases in taxes uh, that they may try to start bringing to bear or maybe after the midterm elections in the fall yeah yeah um so the one one of the first questions i had and and this is a question i asked you actually specifically for my business uh at the end of last year because i was sitting down to dinner with somebody uh who's a contractor and they said oh man i just bought a truck because this accelerated depreciation thing is awesome i get to write off a hundred percent of the truck the first year and that got my gears going because I had a pretty good year last year and could use some tax write-offs. So I called you and said, what do you think about this accelerated depreciation thing? Um, is it as good as it seems with 100% write-off in the first year? What are the advantages and disadvantages of that? Well, the, the advantage is that you spend the money, presumably the cash is out if you didn't finance it. Yeah, And so you're getting to write off every dollar that you spent when you spend it. There's no downside to that. It's, it's a great write-off. Right. The vehicle has to qualify for that based on its weight, which, not having looked at the code for it lately, I believe is 6,000 yep. pounds unloaded. Um, the downside of accelerated depreciation could be that your income in the year you get the deduction isn't great and that if you had the deduction in the future when your income was better you could be lowering your taxable income out of a higher bracket oh okay yep that makes sense that makes sense you you would uh advise me on that too so then there there's other um you also have to use it a hundred percent for business is that correct well to the extent that it's not a hundred percent used for business you have to um charge the user a 
you have to include in their income the personal use of the vehicle. Okay. It's a calculation that's made. And when not used 100%, the depreciation is going to be limited to the business usage percentage. How do you know that if you're buying it the first year and writing off all of it, and then you're splitting up the usage over five years or whatever the life of the vehicle is, how do you know that in advance? You, you don't. What happens is you end up with the write-off in the first year, and to the extent that the business usage was less than 100%, that's the number you're going to get. Hmm. And the, the, the personal use portion of it being included in the owner's or user's income is a function of uh, personal miles over total miles. Okay. And miles to commute to and from work are considered personal. Gotcha. Now, what happens if you only keep it? So let's say I buy a $50,000 truck. Um, and one thing that I think people get wrong about write-offs too is they think like, well, I'm going to keep my mortgage around because the interest is a write-off. But they don't realize they're trading, you know, as as Dave Ramsey like to, likes to say, a dollar for a quarter. They're paying the bank a dollar in interest to save a quarter on taxes. It's not an actual tax credit. Correct. It's a tax deduction. So when spending money that is tax deductible, the tax rate that you're in or the rate that you're paying is the benefit that you get. So on your $50,000 vehicle deduction, if you're in the, and I'm going to use a number of 25%, there isn't a 25% bracket, it's 22, 24, right. 32. But if you were in the 25% bracket, you are going to save 25% of the $50,000 write-off. Right. Okay. So if you don't need a truck, you're giving a lot of money to the dealership in order to save a little bit on taxes. Right. But it's a good idea if you actually need a truck. I always tell people you're not interested in spending money to get a deduction. You're interested in spending money on something you need. The deduction is a byproduct of meeting your need. Okay. Now, what if I keep the truck? Let's say I uh, spend 50 grand on a truck, write it off the first year, and after a year, I want to sell it. So it's effectively written down to zero on the books, correct? Yep. What happens then? I sell the truck for 40 grand after a year. You did very well to, to use it that much and get 80% back. But the answer is you now have a gain on the disposition of the vehicle. And that gain isn't a capital gain. It's ordinary income. You are recapturing the depreciation you previously deducted. So you had a $50,000 write-off. Now you've got $40,000 of income that is ordinary income, not capital gain income subject to a lower tax rate. You've got ordinary income for getting forty grand back of the fifty you previously spent and deducted. Okay, so it's it's really not uh, unless you're planning to actually use a vehicle for business purposes and use it until it's worth nothing. It's really not a full tax write-off. It's just a tax deferment. Correct. Or, or I shouldn't say, ta yeah, it well, is no, a it tax is. deferment. It is. You're taking the write-off now, but if you ever sell it for a gain... You're giving that portion you're back. You're giving that back. And your cost basis, according to the IRS, is now zero. Now, what about these guys? I, I vaguely remember. I don't know how they did this or why or whether or not it was legal, but I've, I have clients 
who would buy a car and depreciate it through their business. Sometimes it was a Ferrari, so you know, I've, let's we can talk about the legitimacy of that later. But uh, they depreciate it through their business and then like gift it to themselves personally and sell it personally, not through the business, so they didn't have to pay those gains. Is that good, bad, ugly? Doesn't sound right. Um, <laughs> you, you have the business can't give an asset to an owner of the business or really anybody without some tax consequence. When you remove that vehicle from the business in some way, shape or form, you have a taxable event. So if the owner, if the, if you had a vehicle, again, we'll go back to your $50,000 vehicle and we'll just say it's worth $50,000. If you give yourself a $50,000 vehicle that your business owns, you've distributed an asset to yourself that will, this is a more substantial conversation, but will count as a distribution to you and lower your basis in the corporation. So while you could take the car, you're not getting a free asset mm -hmm. of $50,000. But w wouldn't they say, well, it's, a, it's an asset of $0 because we've depreciated it fully in the IRS's eyes? That's the book value. The fair market value of the vehicle is what would determine how much you gave yourself. Otherwise, we'd all buy cars, depreciate them, and say, oh, I got the zero basis <laughs> asset. Lucky me. Now I have a zero basis asset that I'm going to go out and sell and put the money in my pocket. Gotcha. I wouldn't have to work again if I could do that. <laughs> Neither would you. All right. Uh, well, that, that leads me into the next question. Let's say I figure out how to give it to myself from the business for zero dollars not gonna do that but i have a i have a you know a low cost basis vehicle mm -hmm. in my personal name so obviously if i sell the vehicle with the business it's it's recorded as ordinary income but if i have a vehicle that i sell and make a personal profit on whether it's you know a distribution from a business or just oh gee i bought this you know ferrari eight years ago for 30 grand and now it's worth a hundred. Now we're talking capital gains. And one thing I've never understood is that, and car owners, this is a new dilemma we're facing because uh, cars have not historically gone up in value very much. There are some collector cars that rise consistently over time. There's an ebb and flow but from 2012 to 2015, we experienced anywhere from 100 to 400% appreciation with quote-unquote collector cars. And in the last couple of years, we've experienced 30 to 40% appreciation in the used car market in general, not because they're collectible, just because of the supply-demand issue. But that has, um, those numbers have been are much higher in the collector car world. So we've had two fa two periods in the last decade where collector cars have gone up 100% in value or more. And the IRS is now saying, well, you got to pay capital gains on that. But car collectors, we've been losing money on cars for decades, and we couldn't write those off as a capital loss. What? How is that fair? Well, first of all, if you're looking for fairness in tax law... <laughs> I suggest a trip to Fantasyland in Orlando or Southern California. You're not going to find it. Um, 
So I'm going to address that in two parts. Let's talk about the, the recent events that have happened, the, dis, the, the pandemic's disruption of the supply chain in cars has caused everybody's used car to be worth more than they owe on it. Uh, a, a, a very real example for me is my daughter-in-law leased a Nissan Rogue while she was in college and was spending about 300 bucks a month on it. And the, when the lease came up, it was worth about $8,000 more than the than the buyout. Than the buyout. Unbelievable. So, and 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 so her net after tax cost or net after sale sales tax, yep. After all of it, she basically drove that car for the 3 years that she had it, not for 300 a month, but for 150 a month. Okay. Um that issue is everybody's had one of those and we've been talking a lot about it just in the in the business world. People are making money on these on these cars. And I would tell you as a matter of law, if you have a gain, if you make money, you should be reporting it. But there isn't a mechanism to report it. Nobody's issuing you a 1099 for buying your car, and nobody's reporting that sale to the Internal Revenue Service. Well, Facebook and Venmo now are trying to, and eBay are trying to 1099 you for receipts over $600. But the car dealers aren't. Um, they're not asking for tax information right. to issue it. The the eBay, Etsy, and all the online marketplaces are looking to, uh, and, and I guess Venmo, Zelle, and some of these other things, are trying to get into the business of reporting income to people who are selling product and other things in online marketplaces because that's, that has been put on them by the government for this enhanced reporting yeah i just that to me is bs because how do they know if it's income yeah i mean by selling a set of wheels i paid five grand for i sell them for a thousand ebay says well that's income no no it's not well it's revenue it's not necessarily income so you would get the revenue reported to you and then on your return you would deduct your expenses first of all the cost of the item that you have so if you got a 1099 for five thousand dollars of products sold but you spent four thousand dollars on the products not to mention other ancillary expenses of running the business whether it was office expenses rent telephone what have you those are going to create deductible items and those people are preparing or should be preparing their returns recognizing the revenue reported to them and then deducting the related expenses and paying taxes on the the net and in some cases some of those folks are losing money sure they're spending more than they brought in so back to the the example with your daughter's car does she have to file a capital gains return because she sold it for eight grand more than she quote unquote paid for it well hers wouldn't be a capital gain it would be ordinary income but that would be if she was depreciating the car or writing it off in the first place right and, and she hadn't written it off and it's not going to get reported anywhere okay all right so let's let's talk about the more extreme examples of the ferraris that appreciate at you know a hundred percent i pay a, i pay a hundred grand for a ferrari I sell it for two hundred grand, and it's just it's a personal thing, nothing to do with the business. Is that a capital gains event? It it would yeah in a collector car that would be a capital gain, and 
you are allowed to offset your capital losses against capital gains. It's not that capital losses aren't deductible. It's that they're limited. So if your capital losses exceed your capital gains, that loss is capped at three grand per year and the balance carried forward. And then any capital gains that come in after that are used to eat up that loss before any taxes paid on capital gain. So to the extent that people had cars that they lost money on that were investments, like any other investment, you keep track of your gains and losses, you report them, and you move on. Now, people who- How do, how do we determine whether or not they're investments, or how do we classify them? Intent. Um, I've never had anybody come to me and declare capital gain income from something that wasn't reported to them. What the capital gain and loss reporting world is really centered on more traditional investments, stocks, and mutual funds. Mm -hmm. And those things go through brokerages. So the IRS gets a document from the brokerage reporting people's activity, both the sales price and the cost basis of those securities. And the information's right there. It's given to the government. It's given to the taxpayer. You put it on your return, and you're done. I I imagine there are a lot of people who collect, because cars aren't the only thing that get collected. Sure. Um, not everybody reports their, their gains on, again, I've never had anybody come to me and say, uh, I bought an asset. I held it for investment. I sold it. I made $100,000. Make sure you pick it up on my return. Right. The, the bigger issue that is being addressed by uh, Congress or Internal Revenue right now would be like crypto. They're asking you to make a declaration on your tax return, whether you have or have engaged in transactions with cryptocurrency. And if, in fact, you have, it's expected that when you sell it, you're reporting the sales and the cost basis and paying tax on the gain, much like a stock. Um, but but they're not that's not automatically being reported to them yet nope Interesting. that's 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 what people love about the crypto world is it's it's the um it's the wild west right until it's not until it's <laughs> They'll not figure out a way they will figure out a way yeah so it's it's interesting you said intent right so i allegedly bought a boat a few years ago and i allegedly may or may not have sold it for a good portion more than I paid for it. But I never in a million years intended to do that. I bought a friggin' boat. A boat is a hole in the water into which you pour money. Like, I, I, I just got lucky. So... Did you buy another boat? Not yet. Okay, because I've heard people never sell boats. They merely get out of old ones and get into bigger ones. <laughs> in which case, then we have a like-kind exchange, which is a whole nother matter. But, um, again, if you have a property that you acquire and you sell it again, you're supposed to report it. Hmm. The mechanism, there isn't a mechanism that allows the government to know that that's happened unless you were audited and they were reviewing other records of yours and that came out. Gee, I see you deposited $28,000 in your bank account on such and such a day from my reviewing of your statements. And uh, it doesn't appear to be a paycheck. It doesn't appear to be a distribution from your uh, S corporation. Where, where did it come from? My boat. How much did the boat cost you? 
I hope your answer is going to be $28,000 or more. <laughs> right. Well, let me talk about the last three boats I own, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So you mentioned 1031 exchanges, and usually that's for something like real estate or something that is intended to be an investment. And it's a like kind exchange, right? So if you sell a piece of rental property, you need to go buy another piece of investment property, not necessarily rental property, but something else that is an investment that is not non-real estate. So I, I've heard of people who have made significant gains on cars, and we're talking like they bought it for 50 grand and sold it for half a million, something that they, you know, really can't get around. They can't hide from the IRS. And they've done a like kind exchange for another collector vehicle. Is that legitimate? Have you seen that? I have not because I, other than your work in cars, I don't really have anybody that's collected or dealt with cars. Interestingly enough, my partner, Scott, has um, other cars that uh, he's acquired for. They're not for driving to and from work. He's got a Corvette. He has a really old Cadillac that he worked on restoring in some way, shape, or form. And, um, you know, th those for him would be, you know, he's just holding them. But I've never had anybody um, come to me and say, hey, I had a collector car and I unloaded it at a gain or a loss. Sure, sure. And uh, have you ever heard of the IRS coming after people for, I mean, I'm sure they audit them and they find those things. Have you ever heard of somebody, the IRS, coming after people for failure to report there isn't a basis for them to have the information okay. that such a transaction occurred. Now, a 1099 forwarded to the government with information gives them uh, information to know what somebody's income was. I've never seen it happen, but if somebody said to me, hey, is there another way the government could find out if you were paid in cash for that item and you then went to your bank to deposit the cash it's ten thousand dollars or more the bank is going to have an obligation to complete a currency transaction report right that will describe the occurrence and that gets filed with the irs and that would be a piece of information they have that somebody deposited ten thousand dollars or more of cash in their bank account right but they're more looking probably for money laundering in, money laundering in that, in that instance um illicit activity yep uh, <laughs> did you i'm sure you saw the thing that was going all around and this is not new to you but it was a big deal on you know social media recently where the irs said that uh was reminding people that uh they needed to report income from illicit activities including you know income from theft and from sale of drugs um, that that really exists, and I I don't know this for sure. I kind of remember it. I believe that's how they got Al Capone. I not yeah. reporting illegal income. Yeah. Okay. So they got him on taxes. Correct. Um, yeah, that's, that's funny. If, the IRS if, doesn't care about whether or not you're breaking the law, murdering people for hire. They just want their taxes. It, the murder people for hire is. That's going to be the criminal case that some justice 
issue has to take care of. The tax evade, the not reporting the income um, is separate for uh, for the internal revenue to go after. Um, I did not read the whole story, but it's very recent news. There was this husband and wife that recently got convicted of um, submitting uh, false loan applications to get rental properties. And again, I want to say that this conviction showed up, if not late last week, early this week. Chris Lee uh, is the last name. And one of the things in there was they weren't reporting income, some of it which may have been inappropriately obtained. Gotcha. You mentioned cash transactions over $10,000 being, uh, you know, a form being filled out at the bank. Now, they're they're not immediately notifying the IRS. I mean, that uh, it does get recorded. Same thing, you know, we do. If we receive more than $10,000 for a car, we submit it to the IRS. Um, that doesn't necessarily trigger an audit. But I've had a few customers when I sell their car, and again, it's it's a personal item that they paid money for. Now, maybe they paid very little for it, or you have the, often I have the scenario where, uh, you know, I can see what people paid for it because, you know, it shows right up on the title. It shows up in the Ohio dealer search system because, you know, that that's how much tax was collected on it. Um, so maybe they're afraid of, well, I wrote on the title that I paid five grand for this car and they're scared of the state coming after them because they sold it for 30. But I think they're also scared of the IRS because I've had multiple people say, well, can you pay me in multiple checks of like $9,000? I'm like, why? It's a check. A check is, is traceable. The only thing the IRS cares about is reporting funds that aren't traceable like cash. They, oh, no, no. If you, if, if I, if there's a transaction over $10,000 in my bank account, it automatically flags the IRS. I'm like, I, listen, I I'm not your that. tax advisor, but I, I think you're crazy. But I've had a lot of people, a lot, I've had more than two, ask for me to pay them in multiple checks of $9,000. And that could just be their misunderstanding of what's going on. At the end of the day, putting in $45,000 to the bank is still putting in $45,000 to the bank and it's going to hit a bank account and then however they have to deal with it depending on their situation they got to deal with it yeah and and to me i wouldn't if somebody was asking me should i get one check for 45 grand or five checks for nine grand i would say it just doesn't matter lots of transactions go through the banking system that are in excess of ten thousand dollars yeah think of all these businesses that we have doctor's offices, legal offices. Um, I don't know about restaurants, but there's lots of $10,000 checks moving between... Car dealerships. Exactly. I I mean, it just like, to me, a lot of the people asking too, I'm going, I I think your paycheck's more than that. So (laughs) is it, it, are they asking that because they're thinking of the cash transaction so they have it in their head? Could be. Like... The IRS is monitoring my bank account. Um, well, first of all, they're not—they're not monitoring your bank account. That's—they can't even keep track with the backlog of paperwork they received over the last couple of years. So, looking at people's banking activity is not some person sitting there scrolling through online <laughs> records and so forth. I, I think the people that you're talking about have in have 
have it baked into their mind that a $10,000 transaction is a problem when, in fact, the issue of concern is the $10,000 cash transaction. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Awesome. Uh, We're going to go to a couple commercials here. We want to thank our sponsors because without our sponsors, we would still be here, but we wouldn't have ads in the middle of it. So I don't know. Uh, Celebrity Machines is a proud sponsor of SwitchCast. Celebrity Machines offers more than 250 different screen-accurate license plates as they appeared in movies and TV shows like Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, The Fast and the Furious, Breaking Bad, and so many more. Celebrity Machines also makes our dealer insert plates as well as our commemorative 2539 plates from the fastest cannonball run ever. It is a great uh, time to order your Father's Day gift and what better gift than a license plate from his favorite movie or TV show? Visit CelebrityMachines.com for more info and use promo code SWITCHCAST to save 25.39% at checkout. Visit CelebrityMachines.com, promo code SWITCHCAST. SWITCHCAST is also brought to you by Nathan's Detailing. Nathan's is a company in Cleveland, Ohio that provides mobile detailing services for individuals and dealership. They also offer PPF, that's paint protection film, not personal protective equipment, and ceramic coating installations. With 800 plus Google reviews and an impressive 4.9 rating, Nathan's Detailing is a go-to shop for all of your detailing and protections protection needs. With Nathan's Nathan's Detailing Convenience is key. Their mobile detailing technicians bring the power, water, and supplies to your home or work and detail your car on site. Check out the link in our description for a free interior fabric protection or leather conditioning with your purchase. Nathan's Detailing, this smiles for you. I love Nathan and I love their company. I feel like that tagline is from a they could be a dentist's office too. <laughs> Smiles for you. Oh man. All right. We are back with Jeff Kelman, CPA extraordinaire. And we're talking all things taxes as it relates to vehicle ownership and collecting. Again, if you'd like to post your question in the comment flow of wherever you're watching live, we'll get to those. You can also call in and speak with us directly. You do not have to give your full name, and we're pretty sure the IRS is not watching anyway. All right. We have a couple questions from the live stream from Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, Hi, Doug. Long-time listener, third-time caller. Texter. I'm currently on a coast-to-coast run with a Penske truck, so no records this trip. Should I get my attainable dream car, the Subaru Legacy S401? It's rare and collectible. I mean, you should always get your attainable dream car. I don't know how rare and collectible any Subaru is, other than like maybe a 22B or something like that, or an original rally car. But yeah, I, I, if you can afford it, you should buy it. That's always my advice. Can't guarantee it'll be... You can write it off on taxes. Oh, of course, we've got a a Montana LLC question. (laughs) Let's see if you want to tackle this one. Elon Musk is suspicious, asked, what about registering a $200,000 car under a Montana LLC? 
then renting slash leasing that car out from the Montana LLC to myself and then using it as a business vehicle for my actual business to depreciate it. Well, there's there's a few flaws in there. Um, first of all, you're not going to depreciate a car that you don't own. You could write off a lease payment, and I won't get into the related party aspect of the transaction that he proposes. I would be concerned about where the vehicle is being garaged. Um, I would expect if that vehicle, for, well, we'll use Ohio as a for example, and I don't know where the, the poster is from, but if you were to get a vehicle in another location and you were to bring that vehicle back to Ohio to be garaged or um, insured, driven, mm-hmm. you'd have a responsibility. Tires on, the, tires on the ground. You'd have a responsibility to the state of Ohio. Yeah, because correct me if I'm wrong, they define sales, they, they conflate sales and use tax depending on how it benefits them. Well, sales tax is what is charged by a seller to someone buying a product subject to sales tax in the state of Ohio. To keep fairness uh, among the bricks and mortar facilities in Ohio, if you go get that car in Kentucky, and and it doesn't, a car might even be a bad example. You and I talked earlier about a different product that somebody purchased in Florida and had shipped to the state of Ohio. The state of Ohio says you bought a a product elsewhere and it's now in Ohio. You didn't pay sales tax on it. It would have in Ohio been subject to sales tax. You owe us use tax. And there is a place on the 1040 to declare the amount of out of state purchases you made and, and pay the appropriate use tax on it. Yep. Yep. We we don't see it very often in practice. We've run into that quite a bit recently, uh, not us personally, but we've seen clients run into that with race cars. So race cars are typically not taxable at the point of sale because there's no title. Um, so, you know, for example... If we sell a vehicle, um, we collect the sales tax and we declare it and we, we pay it when we title the vehicle at the clerk of courts. We don't pay it to the Ohio Department of Taxation. So typically, race cars are bill of sale only. So people buy them from out of state, bring them in. I guess if they did buy it from an Ohio dealer, the dealer would be required to pay it in a different way, um, even though it's not titleable. But they say, well... There's no title, so why would I declare it? I'm not going to register it. Typically, you pay sales tax on a car when you register it. So these clients have been getting notices from the state. Now, I don't know how the state even finds out that they have you know, an off-road vehicle. It's not registered. There's no paperwork to it. They just take it to the racetrack and, and what about run insurance? it around. Do, how do... Would the state of Ohio communicate with an insurance company? Not sure, but wondering where they're getting their information from since it's not coming from anywhere else. I mean, I've heard of, I know that the state of Ohio sends people to car shows to pull VIN numbers off of Montana and Alaska plated cars and or New Hampshire um, to find the owner and then bill them for use tax. 
I would be highly surprised if they're going to the racetrack, especially considering a lot of these track events are private events. But these guys are getting bills from the state. They're coming after them legally to pay use tax for these race cars. Again, not familiar with it. Um, not sure how they're getting their information and what their basis is for asking for tax on a, you know, a race car would seem to be a machine that would be in some way for profit. I mean, people are racing for fun, for money. I mean, if somebody goes, it's probably a bad example, but since I'm a novice to auto racing, when you go to the Indy 500 and you race a car, you're you're investing in a machine mm-hmm. to accomplish a business purpose, winning the race, and perhaps enhancing the brand of uh, the components of the vehicle that won the race. So I'm not sure where that would fall into. Yeah, most of these guys taxation. are just they're doing amateur racing. There's no profit in that. It is all expense, or they're just going to open track days. So there's no media exposure. There's no nothing. They're just going out to, to play rich guy. And I've, again, to the extent that that's happened, I've never seen or spoken to anybody that has had a race car with an issue. Sure. So what do you think about, I also have clients that will sponsor their own race car with their business and write off the whole dang thing. Now, granted, you know, there's legitimacy to it in terms of sponsorship, but there's no cameras, they're not actually racing, so there's a question of legitimacy there because they're literally just going to track days. But a lot of them just have three or four stickers with their company on it, and they're writing off their race car. Well, so we always say to people, you can write off anything that you want. If you are under audit, you then have to defend the uh, the nature of the expense and the the most the threshold we always talk about is ordinary and necessary. Is is the deduction ordinary and necessary to the business? So uh, I'm trying to th- you know obviously when we look at traditional racing. Uh, say the Indy 500 and I'm there there's stickers all over those cars. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of entities that are tied into the business of racing or promoting their their thing and that's, you know, that's their their sponsorship and it's ordinary and necessary to keeping their name in the the public mind. Um the, the, there's so, an established value for that too. There's right. an established market value. These guys go into track days with their $200,000 Viper and saying that's oh, a tax write-off, Mike. Well, and again, they could be writing it off, but if if it's if it gets challenged, I doubt that it would hold up. Gotcha. It, it, it would again the, the ordinary and necessary challenge would be there, and they would have to support the deduction they were taking for that write-off. Interesting. So you can you can attempt to write off anything you want. Correct, but you, you also need to find an accountant that would be willing to sign off on the return. <laughs> You're not going to let me write off my Corvette boat by putting a switch car sticker on it? <laughs> I, I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he, he asked, part of his question was about leasing, right? So obviously there was, there was issues with, you know, the, the structure that he wanted to do. 
um, Putnam and Premier are two major leasing companies that will lease pre-owned vehicles and specifically high-end ones. So if I wanted to sell this Callaway C12 here for 200 grand, Putnam or Premier would write a lease for somebody, you know, four or five grand a month, whatever it is, um, and they can lease it. Now, some guys just do it because they want a competitive payment. They don't want to tie up their cash, whatever reason. A lot of guys will lease through their business because they want the quote unquote tax write off. Correct. You said ordinary and necessary. You may answer it with the same thing, but I see a lot of guys buying Ferraris, Lamborghinis, anything like that, and leasing them through their businesses for the tax write off. Can you speak to the legitimacy of that? So. If you have a need for a vehicle in your business, and I'll use myself for an example, going out to visit clients and doing other things related to my business, I need a vehicle. And to the extent that I use it personally, there is an amount charged to me into my income for the non-business use of the vehicle. Okay. And the rest is a legitimate business write-off. Also on the tax return, for vehicles that are now in excess of $50,000 of fair market value, there is something called a leased auto inclusion that needs to be shown and put onto the tax return as an item of income. Sort of a longer conversation, but the idea behind the leased auto inclusion was we used to have limited depreciation on vehicles. That is, there was a maximum amount you could claim and a vehicle would have, even after 10 years of being depreciated, would have a book value far in excess of the fair market value. So if somebody came to me and said, should I lease or buy for my business? My answer was always lease. You're going to do better in, in the tax world. The leased auto inclusion was enacted to try to bring parity between the deduction you get for the lease payment and the deduction you would get for both the depreciation on the vehicle in question and the interest if it had been financed. It was meant to bring those things together. One of the pieces of legislation that was passed during the Trump administration was they got rid of the caps on the annual depreciation. So you basically are just writing it off like any other asset, which meant that the disparity between leasing and buying had been eroded. Mm -hmm. And now it's only on vehicles. I think it's in excess of $50,000 where you have to deal with the leased auto inclusion. So somebody with a $45,000 Lexus, whether he's bought it or leased it, his deduction's gonna be in about the same place. The, the exotic car that you've mentioned is going to have a pretty large calculation for what that leased auto inclusion would be, and it's going to be an item of income that's going to get taxed. But if that item of inclusion were $6,000 and the person was in a 40% tax bracket, well, the amount of tax that they'd be paying on the $6,000 is 2400 bucks. It's less than half of one lease payment, he'd still feel pretty good about what he was getting. And yes, we see people expense appropriately expensive leased cars through their businesses. Much easier to support so long as they're legitimately using the car for business, sure. for ordinary business purposes, much easier to support than the guy that has an exotic vehicle that he's trying to basically deduct sponsorship through 
for something that doesn't seem like it prov- could provide a whole lot of exposure or revenue. You are not a real race car driver. Uh, is driving your Ferrari to work considered business use? Nope. That's commuting. So if and I'll so if if I go to work, drive to the office, drive home, I have no deductible activity in that moment. But if I, you know, drive to work and then I drive to various clients, those are the miles that would be deemed business miles. Okay. So if you're leasing your car, or regardless if it's a Ferrari or an Audi, whatever. So you're leasing your car um, and you're writing off the lease payment. Let's say before that act was enacted, because I'm thinking, you know, five years ago, it was like a lease was a very simple write-off. You just Mm -hmm. write off the lease. But if you buy a car, you have to do depreciation and mileage and blah, blah, blah. So if you're leasing your car, but using it also for personal use, you'd write off the lease, but then you'd have to report the income to yourself for... Correct. So what happens is there is a computation made. It has to do with the fair market value or cost of the of the leased vehicle what uh, what we'll call the cap cost or the sticker fair market value you apply a formula to it and you end up with a a an amount and then you take that amount and the personal use percentage so if it was uh 2000 business uh 2000 personal miles out of 10,000 total miles 20% of that number is getting thrown into my income Good Lord. And and I would tell you that's still not a bad deal. It would be a better I, no, deal than paying for the car personally. I No, I know. It's just the, the, the weeds of of this stuff. I'm, I, there's a reason you have a job. And, and thousands and thousands and thousands of other people like you have jobs. And there's a reason you charge me thousands of dollars a year. <laughs> that's because I have a wife and two kids. <laughs> Girls or boys? One of each. Okay. I was worried if they were girls, yeah. you might be raising my rates. <laughs> now, the, And the son is already married and living away, and the daughter's college graduated, so oh, my man. pain isn't as extreme. It's, I, I just wish they could make this stuff simple. I, I, would, I would pay more taxes if it was a once-and-done simple calculation if it was purely income based or purely spending based or something and i'd probably pay 10 percent more willingly to not have to go through all this pain for it to be simple you know obviously we live in an income tax society that is the primary generator of how we all give money to the government to support the the common good uh People would be concerned that um, if it was a spending-based system that people who had money might not put it through the economy in an effort to save taxes. I'm, I'm sure there's better ways. One of, and, and this is probably off topic for dealing with cars and collectibles and so forth, but one of the things we notice is that people who want something or enjoy something don't mind that it's taxed. For example, you go to the gas station, you pick up a pack of cigarettes if you're a smoker. You pay the sin tax. You, you pay the sin tax. And I've never heard anybody at get-go complaining about how expensive the pack of cigarettes is 
because of all the taxes that are in there, and it's substantial. Because mm-hmm. um, I've seen what they charge for cigarettes when you're in a duty-free store, and it's about half price. So there's a lot of tax baked in, and I've never heard anybody complain. Because anybody would say, well, if you don't like it, don't smoke. Whereas with income, it's like I'm working hard, and somebody is asking me to take a portion of what I worked hard for and make the contribution and might not even be spending it in ways that I like or approve of. Yeah. Well, and not only that, because I worked harder than somebody else, I now have to pay more even as a percentage than that other person. Uh, It's really tough owning a business. It's incredibly demotivating because, you know, I pay property tax on the building and the more money i invest into the building to make it better which helps out the county the more tax i pay and i mean it, it's just there's so many different ones i i, I don't yeah it taxes can be a very nauseating corporate subject. activity tax quote unquote the tax for the privilege of doing business in the state of ohio whether or not i make a profit And yet, as I told you before we went on to your cast, I consider Ohio's commercial activity tax um, to be a pretty good, um, it makes Ohio a favorable location to do business. So while you're paying on that commercial activity tax, as I've indicated, small business income, the first $250,000 of Ohio's small business income is exempt from tax. Hundred fifty. No, no, no. The the first two hundred and fifty of income that a person makes from their small business. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Sorry, I was thinking of the corporate activity. You, tax. Right, the commercial yeah. activity tax. Right, which is we can get back into yep. that if you wish. But the 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 balance of small business income gets taxed at a flat rate of three percent. I can tell you, having prepared returns in many states, including New York and California, which are two of the worst, they make Ohio seem like a really good place to do business. Hmm. Ohio, and again, not speaking to sales tax, which I know is awfully high and nobody likes, but in the income tax in the state of Ohio is one of the more favorable ones for states that have tax. We know there's a bunch of states that don't have income taxes and as you identified there are states that don't have sales taxes hence those montana alaska llc's Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but they usually make it up in other ways so florida doesn't have income tax but so a lot of people will or sorry they don't they don't have sales tax florida has sales tax they don't have income tax yeah they and they have a lower sales tax rate for vehicles and tax credit whatever so I've had a lot of customers move down there, quote unquote, and put their cars there, and then they find out how much it costs to insure them, and all of a sudden it's it's not as advantageous because the insurance is so much higher in Florida that it offsets any sales tax. Have savings. you ever seen how they drive down there? Yes. It's that, awful. That would explain why I'm, the insurance is higher. I'm really glad the cannonball doesn't go through Florida. And it's not just the old people because we didn't go to Naples. I mean, it's people drive crazy down it's, there. I, I've been there a lot. I've driven there a lot. And it's a place where you got to be super careful. Golly. Um, I don't want to delve too much into the out-of-state LLC thing from a, a from a purpose of sales tax avoidance because you said you're not 
an expert in that. And that really comes down to the nuance of state by state laws. And even the, the, the attorneys that run those um, LLC creation companies say, you've got to review your own state law to see how, you know, what the quote unquote loopholes are. And even then it's, it's a crapshoot. I mean, I know there's a technical loophole for Ohio, but I know a lot of people who have gotten pursued by the state and just said, well, it's not worth fighting a legal battle, so I'm going to end up paying it. And, and the state of Ohio is pretty nasty when it comes to, to trying to get what they're due in terms of use tax. I've heard of uh, them going to boat storage facilities and boats that are not used or registered in Ohio, but you know, people from Michigan might say, well, I can't find a storage facility in Michigan, so I'm just going to put it up for the winter in Ohio. They're literally not using their boat for the winter, but because it's stored in Ohio, they send them a bill for use tax for the portion that it's in Ohio. I mean, they're, they're a little crazy there, but I've heard as it relates to the LLCs that one of the downfalls of creating an LLC to avoid sales tax on your vehicle that people don't consider is that you have to have or you're required by the IRS to have a bank account for that LLC to file, you know, yearly minutes to file a tax return for that LLC. And a lot of people don't do that. They just put the vehicle in the LLC name, pay for it out of their personal account, and nothing ever happens with the LLC other than it owns a vehicle. So not being familiar with the LLC statutes in other states, um, I would tell you, well, and this is really more IRS uh, governance anyway. So the deal with an LLC is there's no such thing in, in the Internal Revenue Code that acknowledges LLCs as a tax entity. Okay. The entities that are acknowledged are two types of corporations, S-Corps and C-Corps. I'll, I'll excuse the homeowners associations. We have partnerships. We have sole proprietorships. And again, I'm leaving out not-for-profit and some other things. So if somebody forms an LLC, the tax code says if it's a single-member LLC, it defaults to a disregarded entity. So as a business, you would complete Schedule C on your tax, on your individual tax return to show revenues and expenses. Mm -hmm. If you don't like how they, and oh, if you're a multi-member LLC, you default to a partnership and obligated to file a partnership tax return. If you don't like how you're being defaulted, there is a form that you fill out that says, this is what I am and this is how I want to be taxed. So you could take that single member LLC that's a disregarded entity, file an S election for it, and voila, you now are going to have an S corp return to file and you're going to be treated for tax purposes like an S corporation. So somebody that has one of these Montana LLCs doesn't necessarily have an IRS filing requirement. Uh, if there's no revenues and expenses in the LLC, uh, there's nothing to go on Schedule C. If there are revenues and expenses, it's not an extra tax return. It's just completing the information that need be presented for the entity. But wouldn't the car they're buying be an expense? If if their intent is to write it off, what it, what is the purpose of the car? Gotcha. The last thing you want to be doing is sending in tax returns with no revenue 
and expense deductions. At some point, you're going to get a letter or a personal visit to discuss your filing. (laughs) So so it's not necessarily the case that you have to file a tax return just because you open an LLC. That is is correct. If you're not planning on writing it off, if you're not planning on doing business activity. Right. My understanding of those entities is that they're created in those states because there are no sales tax states. Yep. Yep. That's correct. As opposed to you know, people that create entities in, in states that have no income tax. Correct. Um, question from the live stream from Red Oak 777. Does receiving a tax credit on an electric vehicle affect the cost basis of my vehicle? That's a good one. Um, the answer is, yeah, it lowers, it lowers the cost basis. Yeah. But so does depreciation. Sure. But if it's a personal vehicle, then... What do you care? Yeah. Right. When people get those, when people get electric vehicles, they're motivated by a tax savings for having um, gotten the vehicle. Um, It's not a capital gain or loss issue. Yeah. For for the record, I hate that that actually happens. I'm not an EV fan at all. You probably know that and if you didn't you can tell by i I know now but i it just it just chaps my rear end that the government pays people to buy evs well they they do um but they are now starting to um find a way to collect taxes from those people who are using roadways and yet not paying gasoline taxes yeah the ohio i realize that somebody said they went to register their vehicle in ohio and the registration fee there's a hundred dollar penalty for an ev um because they're not getting their gas taxes so that the registration cost is is tripled in the state of ohio and i'm i'm not sure what the other costs are but there could be other costs that allows ohio to attempt to recover a contribution uh, for the you know using the roadways much like you said you don't mind paying tolls because you you are seeing and feeling the benefit of your toll dollar to make the road you're using um, satisfactory right right and if I have a two axle trailer I'm paying a lot more because I'm putting a lot more wear on the roadways correct yeah yeah and all the truckers that complain about going across indiana because it's massive massive tolls it's i mean it's a lot but i'm like okay well you're heavy trucks i know what heavy trucks do to my friggin driveway so i can only imagine what they do to the road yeah um as it relates to ohio uh, and, and this isn't really income tax this is just something that's been a frustration of mine in terms of the sales tax um, I've always said that the, um, the Ohio Auto Dealers Association, which is mostly principals of new car dealers, is a big lobbying group for, you know, the, whoever makes up the, the sales tax rules in Ohio, because they're all geared to benefit new car dealers for example if you trade in a vehicle against a brand new car you get a sales tax credit but if you trade it in against a used car you don't so every time you buy another used car you're paying full boat sales tax and i've had instances where i've 
bought and sold a car three different times to people in Ohio. So a $100,000 car will have paid $18,000 in sales tax to the state of Ohio in two years, which to me, again, you said don't, you can't complain about a lack of fairness with the government, but well, with it's, the, with, it's, with it's the, absolutely asinine because it's, it's essentially a use tax, right? And they're getting three X usage just because it changed to different hands. Whereas if the same person had kept it, let's, let's say that car never drives on the road. The same person had kept it, put 300,000 miles on it on Ohio roads. They would have only paid six grand in tax. And unfortunately there's always the reason taxation can't be simple is because there's all these issues that come up and, and nobody sees a fair way to deal with them. Now the example that you've cited does seem ludicrous that you know once a vehicle has been taxed that should be the end of it you paid the full value was paid on the tax but again i this is how they write their laws and again they have to collect x number of dollars per year to keep their government going yeah so i think the state of ohio has seven hundred fifty thousand government employees out of a population of 11 million it's a big number um and so if they're not getting it from one place they're going to get it from another so understanding that income tax is the most common income and sales tax are the most common taxes we pay but the income tax is something that we look at once a year with a bigger number not when you go to giant eagle and buy groceries you're buying what you're buying and you're not even looking at the tax number people vote and the number of people that are going to be irritated by an increase in income tax is substantially higher than the number of people that are going to um, pay tax on a used car. And so it's it, it, when the public is, is complaining about something, that population is much smaller than the general population of everybody that's filing a tax right. return. Right. So part of it is, you know, pick who you're going to irritate because at some point they have a chance to vote you out of office. Right. The answer is pretty much always piss off the rich people because it's a small percentage. <laughs> the people uh, people that have wanted to stay in power realize that if you can just make 51% of the voting group happy, you can hang on to power. And the reality is there's... Uh, so few people with you know substantial income and wealth if you want to appeal to the masses you're going to appeal to people that don't have as much and don't make as much yeah yeah nobody is really feeling bad for the guy who has to pay seven grand more on his hundred thousand dollar car because he decided he wanted a different hundred thousand dollar car correct but it's it's inequitable no matter what but I don't know what the answer is to to making it fair. Run for office and change it. No, thank you. (laughs) And I would say the same thing. (laughs) No, thank you. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for making time and coming out. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I know know your your time is very valuable because I I know. You've seen my bills. I've seen your bills. Oh, man. It is time for the props and flops brought to you by Switch Cars. 
Um, I, I was going to say I would I would promote your business, but you've already told me you're not taking on any more clients. So Correct. <laughs> we'll just say, uh, yeah, go find a good CPA because you need one. Uh, Switch Cars is the enthusiast dealership where we buy, sell, consign, service, and store only cars that we like ourselves. Check out our hand-picked inventory at switchcars.com. Our pick of the week from Switch Cars inventory is... A 2012 Porsche 911 Carrera GTS Cabriolet, and it is nuts for sticks. That's right. It is a six-speed manual. It has uh, the RS Spider center lock wheels, the hardback painted sport seats, sport chrono. It is a very nicely optioned car, and it is the very desirable GTS, which is a more sporty S car. It's got those two letters GT that really matter when you're at Cars and Coffee. And it is available now for a hundred five grand. Um, it's it's one of my favorites in here. So the prop of the week, Ford CEO announced this week that their EVs are going to be sold. It should be a flop because it's about EVs, but they're all going to be sold online with a fixed pricing model. Now, it's something Tesla has been doing for a while, and I know they did run into a little bit of legal trouble initially because there are laws protecting the dealerships in the, uh, I guess, supply chain, as you would call it, not the supply, the distribution chain from manufacturers to consumers, but they figured out a workaround there. Uh, Ford will probably have to figure that out, but um, they figured out the contracts to protect Ford GT buyers from flipping them and made those enforceable, and those were previously not easily enforceable. So I'm sure they can figure it out. But I just I like that they are acknowledging that that is the future of car sales with dealers as more delivery centers. Um, the old school four square model with the start shirt car salesman and taking six hours to buy a car and having to go home and you know, take aspirin because of the mental anguish of dealing with a car salesman. Like that is, that's why I left the traditional car dealership, uh, because I thought it shouldn't be that way. And I'm glad that, um, that Ford is acknowledging that that is the future. So props to Ford and I'm sure other companies will follow suit. Flop of the week. We got two. We have to have two. Um, one is my friend Arnob sent me a photo of a Ferrari at a car show in Missouri. And he said, what kind of car is this? I'm like, well, uh, he said, what kind of Ferrari? I said, uh, that's a fakie, but I think it's supposed to be a 250 short wheelbase California Spider, but it's definitely fake. And he asked me how I knew, and I you know, listed off all, all the ways based on the photos. But then upon closer inspection of the photos, I realized it was in the local Ferrari Club of America chapter tent. <laughs> next to a sign that was asking for membership. So they used a fake Ferrari to try to get people to join the Ferrari club. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I wonder how many people actually picked that one up. The second flop, this is, this is a good one. So a few weeks ago, I think we featured as a flop of the week, the Heritage 4GT that was wrecked down in Florida. The guy had recently purchased it at Mecham for, 700 some odd thousand dollars and he had gone out and wrecked it it was not registered it was not insured and his excuse was that he was unfamiliar with how to drive a manual transmission probably because he had purchased it as an investment 
Well, he tried to insure the vehicle with Haggerty after he wrecked it. That's right. He tried to call up Haggerty and say, hey, I'd like to insure my Heritage 4 GT. Well, the people at Haggerty are on the ball and they said, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, you think we don't have the internet? Yeah, so that guy's that guy's a candidate for a, I don't know, not a Darwin Award, but that's 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 a real winner there. Uh, hard hard to feel bad when those guys lose a bunch of money on a car, but uh, yeah, get insurance the moment you sign a contract for a car, the moment the money leaves your account. Um, yeah, good luck to that guy. Anyway, Jeff, thank you again for being on. Appreciate it. Very edifying conversation, as they always are. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, BoxCast, Nuts for Sticks, Switch Cars, Celebrity Machines, Stephen Holm Woodworking, and Nathan's Detailing. And thank you to our producer and call screener, Ethan Huffnagel. Our bumper music is provided by Emily and Ivory. You can stream their full album on Spotify or SoundCloud. This episode will be available Friday in audio format wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday at 8 p.m., and we'll look forward to answering your automotive questions to help you on the drive of your life.